Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel. Imagine a place where you can listen to trendy chefs and bartenders sharing their secrets behind the scenes. Where they are talking about their paths to success. Where you can get tricks from the kitchen or from behind the bar. In fact, you can get it all here on my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. Today is episode 17. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today, my guest is another chef from New Jersey. And even if I live in the Garden State, I usually have guests on the show that comes from different parts of the country. But when you have a chef that has a vision and that likes to push the boundaries when it comes to his creativity, and then when you are leaving their restaurants, you are want to come back for more, then I know that I have the right guests, you know, for my show. So on the episode number six of Flavors Unknown, I had Chef Aaron Ryan from Common Lot in Milburn, New Jersey. And today, my chef is Sam Friend from White Birch in Flanders. Hi, Chef. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really uh, great to have you on uh, Flavors Unknown. We are, in fact, having this recording face-to-face, which is um, a little bit you know, unique and unusual. You reach out to me through the uh, Instagram, Flavors Unknown, and you were you know, listening to it. You thought that uh, it was something interesting and uh, you wanted to be you know, part of it. So thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. Like I said, I'm very intrigued by what you're doing for the culinary world, getting some young chefs out there. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. I read into an interview that you have given not too long ago that you use the words sexiness of flavor. And I'm just curious when those, what those words you know, meant to you. Sexiness of flavors. So most people, when they go out to uh, high-end restaurants and fine dining, first thing when the food hits the table, they eat with their eyes. So first, you always want to make sure that food does look sexy. But when it comes to sexiness of flavors, the meaning behind that is when you intertwine different cuisines as far as Asian influences and French, which I've studied, and Spanish and Italian, you can mix and match flavor profiles to create a sexy dish. That's what I really mean by that, sexiness of flavors. A lot of people throw the word umami out. I love it. That's bitter, sweet, salty, you know. And I think that the sexiness of flavors are all of that, is when you can intertwine those different cuisines, which I do. I've studied French. I'm Italian, so I love Italian food. When I was in Colorado, I studied some Asian cuisine, and I started really playing with different flavor profiles and uh, just started really creating my own dishes. So I think it was just pretty cool. So is it the complexity about the sexiness or is it about 
the global influence? I would say more global influence. You got to be careful, especially with Asian cuisine because it's strong flavors. In the French with techniques and stuff, I, you do have to be careful because certain things can overpower certain things. So when you have that balance, I think it's a beautiful thing. So we are here today, you know, at your restaurant, White Birch in Flanders, New Jersey. For the people that don't know where it is, it's located on 206 and it's somehow like in between, somewhere in between 78 and Route 80. And uh, for the people living in New York, it's a little bit more than an hour, you know, from New York. So how would you describe the, the concept of White Birch for us? Well, White Birch, the concept behind it is I really wanted to utilize what was in the surrounding area. So it's definitely a farm-to-table restaurant. There are so many farms in this area that, you know, most restaurants around here, from my understanding, don't utilize what we have in our backyard. And I really wanted to bring something to this area as far as a farm-to-table um, restaurant. Everything from my decor to working with local farms and really no one around here is doing that. So I think that's really people get excited about that now. But why specifically this location? Well, this location, ironically, was the first location that I looked at for my other restaurant, Slam and Scratch Kitchen, about five years ago. The concept of what I want to do down there didn't really fit the match of this restaurant. And I literally said, if this restaurant is here in four to five years, I'm going to jump all over it. You know, ironically, this place is very sentimental to me. My parents actually used to come here when it was the Bartley House in the 70s and 80s. So it kind of is like a full swing. I feel like I should be here and, and need to be here because of that reason. So it's a very special thing. It's kind of crazy how that worked out. So they were coming here on the date? They did. They actually lived <laughs> That's here, funny. basically. So yeah, I mean... So full circle. Full circle. Like I said, I feel like this place was meant for, to be mine. So I, I read somewhere that you are a culinary artist, deeply passionate about creating experiences for his guests that will leave palates wanting more. So it's really an ambitious you know, objective. So how do you do that? I feel like it's quite simple, really. I love change. I'm not one who's complacent in, I have to have staples or I can never take this off my menu. Some people don't like that at all. I, I've had a couple of customers kind of backlash a little bit saying, why would you take something so great off your menu? Well, because it's, it's not just about one person. It's about the experience as a whole. So you can constantly create seasonal items and leaving people wanting more when they come back and they see something different. It's basically taking people outside their box, like experience something new. And also I like to bring in new stuff all the time, just not for me, but for people who work for me constantly learning new ingredients. I think it's important to showcase all that you know and also to constantly keep learning. I just want people to really understand the depth of flavor of all food and not just be, I just want short ribs every time I come here. Take the next step. Take that leap of confidence and try something new that you've never tried before. And most of the time people are like, wow, you know, like I wish I did that more. And I think the reason why I've been, we've been so great here is because there's nothing really like this around here. 
like people aren't challenging the consumer. And that's what I'm all about, challenging the consumer, making them want to come back more for new dishes, new excitement and new creations. So. And you feel that the consumer, the customer in the area, you know, are open to it. They have an educated palate, you know, for them to uh, appreciate the, the level of cuisine that you are offering. You know, I think that's the risk with the reward. I think taking that risk of trusting your, your own palate first, putting it out on the plate. I do. I think that I can really, really get people to love white birch as for who we are. Because like I said, I'm not going to do a braised short rib in the middle of the summer. I mean, but some, even like if somebody wants that, to me, it just doesn't make sense. You know, I, I want to constantly challenge you. You know, so I, I do. I really think that the people have taken a real liking to White Birch, what we're doing here. So let's go back in time a little bit. And I'm curious, how did you get started? If you can walk us, you know, through it. I hope we have enough time. <laughs> Give me the short version. Short version. My uh, uncle had a really cool luncheonette actually in Sakasana, New Jersey. And uh, it was a breakfast lunch spot. And at 12 years old, it was a family business, so we were bussing tables, washing dishes. You know, I was constantly looking around the restaurant, constantly eating. You know, I, I loved food as a kid, and uh, I would always cook breakfast for my sister and brother, and the, the, their friends would they come over. And then at fourteen, the summer when I turned fourteen, my uncle kind of turned to me and said, "Do you want to work the flat top today?" And I said, "Yeah, I would love to learn." Ever since then, I, I just just loved cooking. I'll be honest with you, at 14, 15, I had no idea where it would bring me. I'm so grateful that I got introduced to this industry at such a young age. I think everybody should work in this industry at least once in their life to really know, because everyone has to eat, right? So everyone should learn and experience the back of the house of, the, of how it really works. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Me, I don't know anything else that I would rather do than what I'm doing now. So that's how I really got started in my uncle's restaurant. And then did you go in uh, culinary school? You know, yeah, after? so then after uh, my uncle's luncheonette at 19, I kind of left home and hit the big city, New York. And I went to the Art Institute of New York City for a culinary arts program and hospitality management. And uh, I was in school. I was so grateful to land a job with 11 Madison Park and Danny Meyer. Then the real stuff happened That's to me. That's a great start. Yeah, indeed. that was a great start. I'll never forget my first day. They threw a 40-pound uh, tuna in front of me, and I had no idea what to do with it at 19. I'll never forget that, sitting in 11 Madison Park Kitchen, trying to figure out how the hell to, to butcher this uh, tuna. And I butchered it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really quick rundown of how I really got started. Then I was very fortunate to work with some great people. Who was where your mentor? I would say I have a couple mentors in my in the industry as I grew older and started learning more and more especially in New York I would definitely say uh Australian chef Craig Hobson really kind of took me under his wing and showed me the flair really the food side of it really made me understand and challenged me of and taught me techniques and when I went out to Colorado one of probably my biggest mentors Troygard he uh, really explained the business aspect of it. And uh, he let me launch to open up the first restaurant I ever opened for him, which was called Tag Raw Bar. We won Best New Restaurant in Denver. 
And then after that, we opened up a tag burger bar. We were the best burger bar in Denver. So uh, Troy really kind of took me underneath his wing, which I still talk to him today. He's just a great, great chef, great guy to know. So what did you learn from him? You know, from him, he really showed me the Asian cuisine of, of my culinary. So, and also the business aspect of it. You know, he, he always said how great of a cook and chef that I was, but to be successful as a uh, restaurateur, you'd have to know the whole, the whole thing, not just the food. And, you know, I kept blowing. I was like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. But then I really quickly realized when I opened up Slamwich that everything he was telling me and showing me, again, took into fruition and just really opened my eyes like, wow, like everything he was telling me, I'm actually going through right now. So I kind of leaned on him a little bit, made some phone calls in when I needed to and to pick me back up to help me get through it. It says a lot about someone who has 14 restaurants. He still picks up my phone calls and still shoots me text messages. How, how am I doing? That just says a lot. In this industry, you know, you're with these people more than your own family. And uh, I, could, I could literally say he'd be, he's family to me. He's definitely my number one mentor for sure. Most of your ingredients come from local farmers and suppliers that are located. And I think you said like eight mile radius. Correct. Like around the restaurant. So what does this concept represent in terms of opportunities, but as well, I guess, limitations? Well, obviously in the winter, it's tough because the farm's shut down. But, you know, when it comes to vegetables and stuff, they can be preserved and pickled that you can utilize on your menu. We do fermentations, pickling, preserving to utilize that. But, you know, we are in New Jersey. The farm state or the, the garden state. The garden state. The and garden it, state. I'm telling you, it's like I said previous. Even people in general do not support our local farms. I mean, without them, our restaurants are nothing. They're just not. And I think it's important to support local farms and support local companies as well because you're showcasing what, how hard that they work. I mean, I go up to Ort Farms right up the street last fall and I was pulling stuff out of the ground with them. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. So I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks when the farms start opening, start building those relationships again and start with the spring menu, which is coming soon. So it's going to be really, really nice. And you can have access to any kind of produce, I'm guessing from veggies, of course, but meat and protein. Yeah, so well. I'm actually trying to work with a couple uh, lamb farms, pig farms, talk to a farmer in Peapack Gladstone. who has got about 77 acres, does hogs, cows. I think we are actually White Birch is going to be buying a cow this year and uh, try to do a dinner at the end of the summer. You know, there are limitations because most farms do your, you know, standard stuff, zucchinis, squashes, things like that. We work with a couple farms, though. Uh, Let It Grow Farms has actually did a couple plots for just white birch. So they bring a seed catalog. We pick out what we want for the restaurant and then they would plant it for us, which that alone, again, says a lot about this industry. It's a full team effort. I mean, the more we support them, they're going to support us. And how do you control like the quality? Because I, I, that's great to have a concept that leverage local, you know, local ingredients and so on. But how do you balance? How do you make sure the quality is at the level that you expect, you know, for you know, for your cuisine? When you get produce from purveyors, not from the farms, 
you know, honestly, you don't know who's handling it, right? You just don't. And then it goes on a truck, it gets banged around. I get it. But with these local farms, I can literally pick out these things myself. So this spring, summer, and fall, me and my crew will go to these farms and pick them out ourselves. So I know exactly what, how quality they are, how much I need. I like to taste it. I mean, it's a full in, like we're all in. So that's like the biggest thing where if I call my purveyor during the winter, you know, sometimes things are ruined bad, I guess, send it back. But when I go to the farm and I can handpick things, I know they're going to be great. Obviously, you are used to select high quality and fresh ingredients. What would be your advice for a home cook when it comes to ingredient sourcing? Definitely support local farmers, honestly. I think that a lot of people do uh, farmer's markets and then you each week you pick up if it's like a bundle of kale, some turnips, cucumber, it, it, and it's you're supporting the local agriculture. And I think for the people in this area, a lot of people do that. The more people who support that local farms, the better off we are for restaurants. The busier they are, the busier we are. I, I just wish more restaurants did this around here, you know? I'm actually benefiting it from it because I'm really the first restaurant to do it around here. Really? Yeah. Why do you think they, they aren't doing it? I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but it, it is it is a lot of work. You know, it is a lot of work to go to these farms, build relationships, but it's effort. It's passion. It, that's what you have to have to survive in this industry. You know, I have it. So let's talk a little bit about your um, creative process. Where does your inspiration come from? I like to call myself an old soul. I love old school technique cooking. You know, one of my favorite chefs, ever is Marco Pierre White. You know, I look back at these chefs, the Robichons and all these guys, like back then they didn't have what we have now. They didn't have the tools that we had in the the kitchen now. They just didn't. And people were amazed by that food. So it's like, you know, my creativity sometimes just comes when it comes. I usually, uh, as you see here, the Flavor Bible, one of the best books ever. What if I'm stuck on something? I open this up. And just things start just coming. You know, food's endless. It just is. The, the amount of creativity that you can provide with food is endless. And, you know, I follow so many chefs that are doing so many amazing things. It's like, man, I, I still get impressed by even local chefs in Jersey. You know, like it's, it's amazing what New Jersey restaurants are putting out there right now. There's a lot of great restaurants in Jersey and like top-notch chefs. And I'm just happy to be considered one of them, I, you know? So the creative process, I could be literally sleeping in the middle of the night, wake up and think of something, you know? It's just, it kind of just happens. But does it come from the produce, the ingredients, the technique, uh, well, travel memory? Yes, a little bit of everything. Like, obviously, um, I'm a seasonal chef. Like, once spring comes, I want all spring ingredients. Once summer comes, I want summer. So... That's that constant change. I also do like a little foraging. So, you know, we'll be picking wild ramps out in the, in the woods in a couple of weeks, which I can't wait. I also do like to provide some of my old dishes when I first started in New York 10 years ago. I, I think that's cool. To, and then revamp them. But the creative process, like I said, it's almost endless of when I come up with things. So how do you introduce 
your global flair and touch that you talked, you know, at the beginning of the interview, like the Asian touch? Again, I, I am depending on the, the, the season, yeah. So if I use like a raw fish dish, I like to use some Asian cuisine because it just kind of just goes hand in hand. You know, like my snapper dish that I had on the menu, that was very Spanish forward. So if you see on my menu, you might, I do think it's kind of like a global menu. I have a little Asian, a little Spanish, Italian with my fresh pasta, French technique cooking, you know, so it's just. So let's take your pork belly, for instance. What I believe from all the pork belly dishes I have tasted around the country. This is, is recording, right? <laughs> yes, you can <laughs> listen to it. Is the best I ever had. So Thank you. can you explain a little bit what was the creative process behind it? So I first got introduced to Pork Belly, again, early 20s in New York City. I just thought it was so cool. Like, oh my God, I'm about to eat a belly of a pig. Like, how cool is that? Over the years, I've, I've messed up a lot. I think when you mess up certain things, that's how you learn. Failure, right? So once we opened Slamwich, I really got into the curing of meats, smoking meats, that's what we do down there. So when we started messing around with the recipes for our pork belly, believe it or not, we knocked it out of the park first round. So the process behind the pork belly, we cure it for about six days in a white birch cure, rinse it off. After that, we smoke it for two hours. We use apple wood from a local apple farm, which is phenomenal. I use the same apple wood for slamwich as well. Smoke that for about two hours. And then we cook it in pork stock or chicken stock if we have it, and then for about four hours until it's super tender. Now, to me, this is the most important part about my pork belly. I press my pork belly. I like to compact it down so it's all even, and then you put weight on it. So for 24 hours, and it comes, becomes cold, and it's all even. All the juices go back into it. The excess fat kind of gets out because sometimes pork belly can be really fatty. And I believe when you press it, there's plenty of fat that goes through the pork belly where you're not going to lose it all. But how do you get the crispy top? Because uh, one aspect that I really love in a dish is the contrast of texture between, you know, like the meat part and then, you know, the seared crunchy. Yeah, so when we pick it up on the pickup, put it skin side down, pinch of oil in there, and just render out that fat content right out until it gets to be really crispy. And, and succulent. I believe that you had the pork belly with the saffron aioli, the Peruvian potato. Right now, our new pork belly dish is beluga lentils, mirepoix with a bacon maple uh, sauce on it and a, with poached pear. Where's a sample? Oh, I can get you one. <laughs> but again, you know, it's a process. It's about a week process for start to finish. And that's like, you know, that's that patience in food, you know, it be, takes time. And you know, the first time I did it, I only cured it for two days and I didn't think I had enough cure. The next time was three. The next time was four. And I found out the more I cured it, the, the more flavor it had. So it's trial and error, like just like everything. So I know we said that we will talk about, you know, one dish, but I would love to hear you talk about another staple of your menu, which is in the appetizer section, which is the, the onion tart. It's not a big dish, but it's very complex. There's a lot of taste, it's layered. There's a lot of texture, you know, as well, experiences, you know, in that dish. My amazing pastry chef, Mel, she makes an awesome uh, pie crust. Awesome. So we take her pie crust, par bake them, and in the onion tart, we use 
awesome Cipollini onions, Gruyere cheese, fresh thyme, garlic confit, and we make our mixture. And then we just kind of bake them real, real. It's almost quiche-ish. Like, I don't like to call it quiche because it's really, to me, it's, it's more than that. What's cool is that we do these crispy parsnip chips on top for texture as well. A little frisé salad, toasted pine nuts. And then on the bottom, which is kind of hidden, is that uh, charred onion puree, which is a little sweet element too. So it's, it's just, uh, I needed a vegetarian dish. Ironically, when I was creating the first menu, this is where I kind of struggled for like one more vegetarian dish. And I remember that we did a mushroom tart in at one if by land, two if by sea. When I worked there, I said, "Well, you know, I have mushrooms here, and I want that." I said, "Let's do an onion tart." And at first, the play was kind of like I want to do a play on French onion soup, like that was my flavor profile. And then I kind of contrasted into this tart, and I swear, everybody loved that thing. And in my opinion, I thought that sometimes you you know your some dishes are just gonna be a huge hit. And I was like, maybe I'm taking the easy way out in this onion tart. I don't know, but I'm going to just put it on. And lo and behold, here we are talking about it. I can live on that tart and in, in so, the pork belly for go, sure. Yeah, it goes to being simplicity. You know, I, I love that word. I don't ch- try to overthink so many things because I feel like once you start really thinking about it, you overthink it. And then you start putting too much into each thing. And then it's too much. Everything gets lost. So that was like on a whim dish. But now it's staying because everyone so, loves it. So you are playing with a lot of different ingredients. And I'm Absolutely. curious, what is your latest ingredient obsession? I'm going to have to say a, this new vegetable called collalini. It's a hybrid broccolini cauliflower had a baby. It's beautiful. Really? Yeah, it's green it's as well. Vibrant green stems with these little floral white like small little things of cauliflower on the, uh, it goes with our sturgeon dish right now. Beautiful. It's, a, it's really unique. I don't think I ever had it. So I have to try so it. So you have to come back for dinner. Absolutely. <laughs> you were talking before about, you know, the chef, some uh, chef, uh, iconic chef that didn't have access to what you have now today in the kitchen. So I'm curious, what is your favorite kitchen equipment that you can look live without and of course please don't talk about your the knives and yeah, yeah, yeah. but beyond that for me personally i think i don't know where i would be without my pasta machine uh, honestly that and my and a vitamix okay i think my pasta machine and vitamix who doesn't like fresh pasta so you have a special uh, formula for pasta absolutely yeah. wow i've been making fresh pasta my whole life my grandmother is 100 italian there's a picture uh, we have, I must be four or five and just pasta hanging all over my arms. I mean, we just, I just, a fond memory of sitting in her kitchen with flour every, everywhere and just pasta everywhere. My whole family is so into food. It's, it's, it's really cool. I'm smiling in my head at the moment because I'm thinking about the people listening. We are in New Jersey and I'm talking someone is a background from Italy. So Kind of a cliche. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> We're everywhere. <It's> pretty interesting. <laughs> We're everywhere. Your restaurant, White Birch, is open like how many months now? Five months. Five months. So it's a recent. Opening a restaurant, obviously, is a very complex, you know, 
approach and could be very stressful. So what are the, the tips that you can give to um, young chefs that are embarking into a project maybe or interested into the restaurant business? I'll be 35 and I have two restaurants now. I'm very blessed with the support that I have. To me, without support through friends and family, it's very hard. I've, I've had such an amazing support group. When you open up a restaurant, you really put your heart and soul into it. And it does take time. It's not for everybody. You know, a lot of people think that they can do it. The percentage of restaurants that open and close within the first year is, is beyond high. It's a huge risk. It's not just a risk on your personal life. It's a risk of your family's life, everything. It's time consuming. You know, so my advice to anybody who would want to open up a restaurant, be passionate. Take pride in what you do. Like really. And if you're going to do it, go for it. Don't hold back anything. I know I've never held anything back. As I said, I think that you learn from failure. And I can't tell you how many times I failed in the kitchen over and over and over again. But I use that. I use that now that I'm older of learning what not to do. I think that is so important when you open up a restaurant and be patient. Like when you, you got to be patient because it takes time. I know it's a cliche saying my father said Rome wasn't built in a day. Took me eight months to open this. And you know, when I put this sign up, people were like, oh, new restaurant opening up. Well, you know, a lot of work goes into it. It's not just put up a sign, open the doors, you know, you got to wait for other people. The town gets involved. You got to hire the right people. I was supposed to open up a week before I really opened up. But in my heart, I just know we weren't ready. And I extended it one more week. And I think if I opened that week prior, we would not be where we're at today because you really only have one shot at a first impression. You got to knock it out of the park. You got to make sure all your ducks are, are lined up. Got to make sure you have great people working for you. Don't just hire people. Really invest in your team. People think I got here because of how hard I worked. And I worked hard. I worked very hard. But I was always paying attention. Not just on my station. I was always looking around, always my head on a, on a swivel, constantly trying to learn, constantly asking questions. So when you say invest in the people, like the team that you have, how do you do that? What's your leadership you know, style and how do you coach them? I approach everyone like an adult and I'm very real. At the end of the day, this is a business, but I want to make sure people are happy here. I create an atmosphere of family. I, I really do. I grew up in a strong family. I have a strong family now. I always said, you know, you're giving your time away from your family for me. I'm going to invest in you. Again, I just don't hire people. You know, all my servers have to take tests quarterly about the menu. It's our main goal for anybody who walks through our doors to have the best experience that they could possibly have in this industry. And I need people to provide that. And I think that my servers are top-notch. I think my cooks are great. People now, it's, it's tough to find great cooks and, and help. And some people are, get desperate and just want to hire people. But knowledge to me is power in here. Like You got to know. I mean, you can just hire anybody off the street, throw a knife in their hand, and they have no clue. Well, it takes... And that's okay. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But you can tell, at least I can, within 
three hours who wants it and who doesn't. Who's just here for a job? And that's fine. Everyone has to work. But I like to hire future chefs, people who want to be in this industry for life. And I think when you can find that in people and you can coach them your way and guide them, it shows a lot about who you are as a person to take that time. Because like I said, I had great executive chefs, but sometimes I've had even better sous chefs teaching me. You know, it's tough to go up to an executive chef when you're a young kid and be intimidated. You know, you lean on your sous chefs to help you through this stuff. And I had great mentors who taught me a lot of stuff. And when I had the opportunity to open Slamwich, I knew I was ready because of Troy Guard. All the things he taught me, I just knew it. When we opened that, it was the most frightening thing because all the pockets were emptied. We just, I, everything I've had went into it and it's a risk and it's the reward is even is great. So let's talk about uh, Slamwich Scratch Kitchen in Madison, New Jersey. Nice. nice. I good. Was able to good. Say it. So it's interesting concepts because it's really described as a delicatessen and everything there is homemade. And so you have like from the cured pastrami to the house bread and the pickles. And you had a lot of like award and uh, credit choices, you know, for lunch in 16, yeah. 17, and 18. Three P. So can you tell us a little bit of this, um, you know, the concept of, you know, of uh, Slamwich? I went from working to some of the best restaurants and fine dining to uh, taking a couple steps back to open Slamwich. Our definition of Slamwich is fine dining on a roll. Still took the cooking techniques and the quality of ingredients to Slamwich, but put it on a roll. And I'm one who looks at ingredients a little bit different. Like, you know, I remember specifically like, at my uncle's restaurant getting like roasted peppers in a jar. And I was like, why can't you just roast your own pepper? Like, what's the big deal? Put it over fire, steam it, and peel it. Done. Yeah, it takes a little time, but you're doing it yourself. Like, you get that real charred flavor. I'm always one that says, if you could do it, do it. When we opened up Slamwich, we definitely, it was great. Everything was made from scratch. And the prep was a lot to teach people. But you know what? It made it, it made it so unique because I wanted to bring that old Jewish style delicatessen back. You know, these big companies came around like Thumans and Boar's Head. I hate to say it, but people got lazy. People like, oh, if I don't have to do it and I just get it shipped to me, why not? I think it's lazy. I think if you can do it and do it better, why wouldn't you? So you do your sausages and everything. everything so. We house ground all our own burgers. My business partner, George Braun down there was a butcher by trade for 17 years. So in that aspect, how lucky am I as a chef? I get it. My business partner, my friend, is a, I have an in-house butcher. This guy can break down anything. Big smoker down there. It's a lot of work. But like I said, it, people really recognize the effort down there. And if you guys get a chance, check. I mean, just our pickle alone. You could jar that up and sell it anywhere. You can. But I think working really hard in the fine dining, um, then I had my, I had my first son. I kind of wanted to be around more. Then I met my wife and she actually helped me open the restaurant, which was really cool. And you start having kids and you like want to be home. So the hours were kind of like better, but I still always had that niche of fine dining. Like I still, it was like, you know, it was four years. I was like, 
and I had this opportunity now to have both places. It's, it's corny, but it's a dream come true. So how from, uh, let's say, a concept standpoint, how do you approach opening a place like uh, Slamwich compared to, um, you know, White Birch? Slamwich is definitely more low-key, fun, funky, cool atmosphere, let loose, let your hair down and have fun and eat. Not as stressful, to be honest with you. Like I said, it was fun. You're constantly creating these crazy wild sandwiches where then, you know, your attention to detail kind of went into just the food aspect of it. You know, we have paper cups down there, plastic cups. It was like, you know, we have these sandwich sodas that we make and stuff. So it's like, you know, I don't want to say it was easier because it wasn't. It was just different. Kind of was this very similar to when I was growing up cooking for my uncle. But again, it was it was in more depth of that creating side of it, of homemade bread every day. It's like, Still, like when I go down there, we make the bread, pulling it out of the oven. It's still just memorizing of like looking at this homemade bread. It just is. So then, four, we're in July, will be four years, Slamwich. So then, I'm not going to lie, when I opened White Birch, when we started working in the kitchen, I was rusty. And I, and I was like, tell him, I was like, whoa. I was like, I need to really acknowledge what I have going on here. And I took a couple steps back. And over the next couple of weeks, I processed what was really happening. You know, you can process all you want, but when these doors open, it's go time. And I'll never forget the first thing at White Birch, you know, that rush came back. When you have, you know, Slamwich is unbelievable. I love it. It's my baby. White Birch, the same thing. I love them both just equally, but they're two different concepts. Definitely White Birch is attention to detail all the way. From the glasses to the shared plates to the silverware picking everything out, you know, when we went to, when we did Slamwich, it was like, oh, click some baskets for the fries. It was simple. Like here, everything had to go. Everything had to flow. Definitely in-depth, more detail for sure. So let's take an example. I would like to pick up uh, your brain and uh, maybe you can give some inspiration to uh, home cooks that are, you know, listening to uh, the podcast. Let's take a common ingredient and like um, cauliflower. And how can a home cook innovate with cauliflower at home? What would be your suggestion? How you know people can prepare it? Yeah, cauliflower is definitely a very versatile vegetable. Obviously, a lot of people eat it raw, crudo style. You could take it as we do at White Birch. You cut a real thick piece and marinate it in herbs and olive oil and grill it as a cauliflower steak. Um, you can eat it raw and put it in a food processor and make cauliflower couscous and add some golden raisins, parsley, lemon, kind of make it like a nice couscous salad, but with cauliflower instead of the grain. You can also substitute it with from with potatoes instead of like mashed potatoes. You can do mashed cauliflower. Obviously, it makes amazing soup. Cauliflower is great. I love it. And my kids love it. Again, like I said, very versatile vegetable. So when you say that you can make it and use it as an ingredient in a soup, how would you come up with like the whole recipe? What will be the other ingredients involved? And so cauliflower is obviously white. So anything if you add like a darker vegetable could change the color. So you know if you're going to do a soup, you might want to add white onion, garlic, it's white vegetable, some herbs, vegetable stock. Obviously, you could put everything in a pot and bring it to a boil, or you and that will give it one flavor. 
But if you end up roasting it in the oven, that brings out even more depth of the flavor. What we like to do, I like to do a nice roasted cauliflower soup. It's like off-white. The color's, you know, not as pleasing, but the flavor, unbelievable. So, you know, chop up some onions, some garlic, sweat that in some olive oil and some herbs. Roast your cauliflower in the oven. When that's done, add it. Add your vegetable stock. Season it to taste. Blend away. Eat it up. Very cool. So, Chef, we have been talking here for almost like 45 minutes. So I have now um, five rapid fire questions for you. On the fly. Here we go. On the fly. So where do you eat in the area where you're off the clock? Where do I eat? And not at home. When you can get away from, uh, with your wife, away from the kids. Well, me and my wife definitely try to go out to eat at some nice restaurants once a month. But when we're at home, we actually eat a lot of Thai food. But outside of home, any other restaurant that you can talk about? Actually, we ate at Jockey Hollow not too long ago, James on Main, two weeks ago. And actually, we're going back to Jockey Hollow in two weeks for a uh, CBD dinner. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we'll be on there. <laughs> Give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating. Spaghetti meatballs. Are you Italian? Yes. Kabasi. The third one, I'm probably going to say a charcuterie board. Can live without oh, wow. cured meat. As you can see, I like my salt content. So you have the Flavor Bible book, you know, on the table here in front of us. Beside this, what are your, let's say, two other favorite cookbooks? White Heat by Marco Pierre White. And I would probably say Letters to a Young Chef by Daniel Balud. What do you like the most in being a chef? The most I like about being a chef, a couple of things. Definitely creativity. And really the people who come who you come across in your in, in in your life. Good, bad, and indifferent. I've come a long way. I've met so many different types of people. It takes a unique person. And there's I've met some definitely some characters, as I could be one as well. I'm sure people could say that about me as well. And what do you like the least in being a chef? There's actually not much I don't like. If anything, it's probably being away from my kids. Time. I wish I could have some time back, but I signed up for this years ago. Last question. What is your favorite ballpark snack? Gotta go with the hot dog. Hot, hot dog, dog, spicy mustard, and onion. Very good. Thank you, Chef. Thank you for being um, on the show. I, I really am glad that you had some uh, time to spend with us. Thank you so much, man. A pleasure being here. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. If you have suggestions about who would be great to have as a guest on the show, please answer the question in the comment section of the contact page on the website flavorsunknown.com. I will do my best to contact them and try to see if I can get them on the show. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.